over the course of a longer retreat like this, we get the opportunity to experience the ups and downs of practice, the coming together and the falling apart of our practice, not only in a on an hour-to-hour basis, but day-to-day, week-by-week, we see that, you know, there's, there's a rhythm to coming together, falling apart, coming together, falling apart. And if you undertake a longer period, three months or three years, you'll see that there's the same cycles throughout that time. If you happen to hit a high sitting on a high day in a high week and a high month. <laughs> wow. On the other hand, if you hit a difficult sitting on a difficult day in a difficult week in a difficult month, wow. And what really amazes me after years of practice I'm not quite so susceptible to it now, but for many years, is that when you hit the high, you think, this is the way it's going to (laughs) be. And when you hit the low, you think, I'm giving up, forget it. I'm never going to do this again, because this is the way it's going to be forever. And we get seduced into this misbelief almost every time. Do we ever get to a place in practice or an understanding of practice where we know and can rely on the coming together, the falling apart, the coming together, the fun, and not get jerked around by that? Or rather, I should ask, how is it that we do eventually come to this place of rather than practicing in order to attain something, some experience or exquisiteness or subtlety, we shift a gear to where practice is just the way of life anyway, no matter what's going on. And that's a big shift in practice from I'm doing my practice to my practice is doing me. There are three transformations that have to take place in practice in order to make this shift. And these transformations occur, are occurring as we practice here. And they're, you know, you kind of have to step back and take a a broad range look at what's actually happening. But I want to speak about them tonight. And the first is that as we continue to practice, our understanding of what practice is doing with us becomes clearer. Meaning, we let go of our some of unrealistic hopes and ambitions and expectations and anticipations, and we actually see, oh, this is what practice is doing. Secondly, 
Because practice is a challenge. It's a challenge for everyone. It's really, it's really tough. And yet, we keep doing it. We, we really, we reaffirm over and over and over again that this direction in our life, this aspiration that we're clarifying as we keep practicing is worthy of our efforts. And we're challenged in that belief or understanding a lot. You know, am I wasting my time? Am I, am I doing this right? And why bother? And that comes up a lot. And the third transformation that happens that we, rare, we rarely see, but after 10 years of practice, you can look back and see, oh, this is what happened. We come to practice with this, a kind of understanding of ourself as being who we are, able to do certain things, and we think that we're going to do practice. We think that this self is somehow going to do practice. I feel confident or I don't feel confident and I have an understanding or I don't have an understanding and I'm going to do it. Somehow it's me that's going to do practice. And slowly over time, we, underst- we begin to understand that that confidence in ourself or that sense of being the agent for practice or the agent of change in practice, that gets undermined and really gets taken apart. And what grows in its place is a trust and a confidence in the Dharma. That we really begin to see, oh, this is the way it is. It's not me doing this necessarily. But rather, this is the way life unfolds. This is the way the mind unfolds. This is the way practice unfolds. And we begin to really trust that. We begin to trust the process of practice more than ourself as the one who's doing practice. And that is maybe the most uh, necessary uh, transformation to occur. All of the instructing, entertaining, inspiring, explaining, exhorting that we do in these talks and instructions and question and answer periods and interviews is to just keep you practicing. No matter what you come in with, we'll do anything that when you leave, you say, okay, I'll go back and try it again. You know, we'll, we'll do anything, we'll say anything to get you to keep practicing because it's practice that is going to make the difference. It's not what we say. It's not your opinions of practice. It's got nothing to do with that. That, that stuff is useless. But rather, if you sit and pay attention and you walk and pay attention, the practice will do you. And the transformations will take place. If we told you that and just said, just do your practice, the transformation is going to take care of themselves, we, we don't believe it, we don't understand it, we got too many questions about that, and we wouldn't practice. 
If you have to have your answers, your answers to your questions before you practice, you'll never practice. Only practice reveals the answers to your questions. I want to speak about the confirming experiences we have along the way that practice works. So that you, all of you, can, can begin to see in your practice here that there are these moments, brief as they may be, or whatever, as mundane or as undramatic as they may be, that is what hooks you, it hooks you to the Dharma, or it's the Dharma hook gets in you, and then you can't get it out. You know, it just kind of keeps <laughs> pulling you along. Come on. And if we know that this is what's happening, it just makes, it's just, there's support for no matter how difficult it gets. As mindfulness grows through our persistent application of the energy and the effort and the understanding and the instructions, the mind begins to open. It's just, it's just unavoidable. And when the mind opens, we begin to see previously unknown mental, emotional, physical, spiritual terrain of the mind. And, you know, they say all roads lead to Rome. But if you go down some of the roads that lead to Rome, you're going to see very different experiences. You know, if you, take, if you come from the north, you're going to see one thing. If you come from the south, you'll see something else. If you come from the east, it's very different. But one thing we can say, no matter which direction you come from, you're going to go uphill, you're going to go downhill, you're going to cross water, it's going to be hot, it's going to rain, it's going to be cool. I don't know when or where or just how it's going to happen, but we know those things are going to occur. The same in the spiritual path. You're going to cover certain experiences. There's certain things that are, that are bound to happen. Don't know where, don't know when, don't know just how, but if we understand them as the result of good practice, it can be a, a really confirming experience and support us. And in that, it helps stabilize our confidence in the Dharma. Tonight, I want to speak about another list from the Buddha's teachings. And these are the ten upakalesas, or the ten corruptions of insight. Because these are all experiences that occur because of good practice. And as soon as they occur, they become a hindrance. So it's good to know that we're on the right track and that we've just got caught. <laughs> so tonight I want to answer the two questions. What are we doing here? And can I really do this?
When I was practicing in Burma, I was initially reporting to Saito Pandita every day, two o'clock. And for better or worse, he has a very specific way that you must report your meditation experience. You must go in and do your bows and then say almost these words, this formula. I sat down, I directed my attention to the rising and falling of the abdomen, I noted the rising, I observed pressure, tightness, tension, whatever it is, fill in your own blank. Okay, I noticed the falling, I noted falling, and I observed. Okay. This continued for X amount of seconds or minutes or however long it is for you until I noticed fill in the blank, which I noted as fill in the blank, and when I noted it, this is what happened to it, fill in the blank. And that's the only way you can talk about anything that you have experienced in the last 24 hours. You must speak of it that way. Well, this is maddeningly difficult to learn because he won't even let you begin to talk about anything else until you get that formula down, until you can report like that. He just, he won't, he'll just cut you off in midstream. He won't even let you say a thing. Forget it. You know, what about the rising and falling? Tell me. And then also with the lifting, the moving, and the placing of the walking. And you've got 10 minutes <laughs> so, to get it all translated and get the instruction back. Well, this is, you, you can't ramble on about your reflections, your doubts, your fears, your concerns, your letters from home, what's happening to the food, your sleep, your roommate problem. Forget it. You know, those things, how'd you note it? What happened when you note it? If you can put it in that formula, you can talk about anything. Well, it gets a little repetitive. What can you say about the rising and falling of the abdomen? I mean, it's like... So, it sets off this very creative search for ways to say the same thing differently. And it also sets off this search for the subtlest, slightest difference of experience. I mean, anything. You know, you'll report it as being a dramatic thing. <laughs> then, I might have mentioned this, after a couple of weeks of reporting like that, he gives you the instruction. Don't report anything you've ever said before. Okay, now you've got nothing to say <laughs> because you've already said everything. That, okay, so what you do is you look for the most dramatic or the most disgusting, depressing, difficult things to say. And that's exactly what he wants to hear. Because he understands that practice is, you know, it goes like this, up and down, up and down. And it's only at the cutting edge of practice that something new is revealed, that you, that you begin to confront something new, different, in a new way or a different way. Everything in the middle, you've been over hundreds of times. You don't need any guidance for that. But at the edge of good practice and at the edge of the most difficult stuff, that's where you need guidance. And so that's all he's really interested in. It's not that everything in the middle is unimportant. It's just that you don't need any guidance. You've been over that. You know that. Both the highs and the lows 
that we would normally call the highs and lows of practice are good practice. There's no such thing as bad practice, unless you're sleeping. No matter how difficult it is or challenging or, you know, how explosive the hindrances are, if you're working with it, that's good practice. On the other hand, subtle, light, airy, fairy, all that stuff, good practice. The first time. <laughs> After that, it's just repetitive. So, I'm... I want to talk about this good practice because at the edge of practice, at the edge of good practice, we open, we see something different. We see it new. We see, and it can be very subtle. That first time seeing flicks a switch in your mind. You don't have to repeat it. You don't have to see it again. You don't ever have to revisit that room of the mind. You have seen it. It, the knowledge of what's in that room has gone into your mind stream and made its changes. Forget it. Keep going down the hall. With mindfulness, with the development of mindfulness, we begin to get this understanding that what we're experiencing is really not so really the content of our experience is not so important. It really doesn't matter what you're experiencing. How you are relating to it is everything in practice. Whether it's subtle or gross, whether it's known or unknown, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that's, that's really not important how you're relating to it. Did you see it clearly? Did you note it? Did you notice what happened to it? And did you have a a relationship to it. That's what's important. It's hard for us to believe that because so much of our life is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And if we come across a lot of pain, emotional pain, physical pain, in our practice, we think, it's not working. I'm not doing it right. It's whatever. And in any other endeavor in life, that would be a correct assumption or conclusion. Not so in Dharma practice. Some people have a lot of pain. Body pain, emotional pain. If that's what's up for you, that's what you have to be with. Eventually we begin to, to get this understanding and there are periods of time where the mindfulness just sees things as it is. And in spite of our judgments and dislike of it, we recognize good mindfulness. Unfortunately, we get attached to it. We get attached to the clarity of and the continuity of just knowing things the way they are. And so, good mindfulness is good practice. The attachment to it is a hindrance. Another experience that comes with practice is the sense of calm, tranquility. I don't mean just that the mind isn't restless anymore or that the body feels still, but I mean this, this, this sense of 
just feeling really connected to what's going on, just intimately present with the moment, not, not agitated in any way, even though there might be a lot going on in the body, in the mind, just flooded with stuff. There's a feeling of being totally still in the midst of it all. Initially in practice, well, one yogi came into an interview and exclaimed, what I was calling calm last week, I would now have to say was real agitation. Because now I know what calm is really like. And what they had begun to see is that in the early days of practice, days, weeks, years, whatever early practice is for you, the calm that we experience is really the calm of kind of holding it together, kind of holding your mindfulness somehow, kind of rounding it all up and kind of holding it in the moment. And, oh, okay, that's calm. Whew. Okay, I'm here. And, you know, that feels calm compared to just being jerked around by events. But when we find the, a way of letting things be, not having to corral them, not getting jerked around by them, but just sitting in the midst of them. Let them do their thing. Then there's the calm of just letting things be. And that's a much more profound calm that comes from actually letting go. That's the kind of calmness I'm talking about, where the observer or the one who's meditating or me, I'm calm. Things can be chaotic and confusing and, you know, fast, but the observing is calm. Did you ever look at... I hope you've all been snorkeling here. Sometimes you, you see these little fish underwater and, you know, the tide's moving this way and that way, and the waves are coming in this way and that way, and the surges are doing this way and that way, and the rocks are there. And the fish are, sit, are, are I was going to say standing, sitting. I don't know what they're doing, floating, swimming, something. They're there. Anyway, they're there in the water, not moving. I mean, they're not moving around in the water, but their stillness is very dynamic. If you look close, they're just all a flutter, just to stay still. Well, that's what, it's like. that's what the calmness of good practice is like. It's not kind of calm, like inert nothing blob. It's like, it's the calmness of a very dynamic stillness. The best way of talking about it is to say, you know what it's like when you feel very light on your feet? You know, when you just feel, for whatever reason, you know, you're walking down the street of life and you feel light on your feet. It's feeling light on your mind. It's like your mind being light on its feet. That kind of calmness. We don't make it happen, but it's an experience that comes with continuity of practice and where the body is very still and upright, very relaxed, kind of an effortless energy. And... Um, there may be pain, but it's not a bother. It doesn't disturb our calmness. I want to read a description of this kind of energy as experienced by Bill Russell, one of the Celtics basketball players. He said, every so often a Celtic game would heat up. 
so that it became more than a physical or mental game. It would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. It came rarely, and it would last anywhere from five minutes to a whole quarter or more. Three or four plays weren't enough to get it going. And when it got going, it would surround not only me, but the other Celtics players, the other players on the other team, and even the referees. At that special level, all sorts of odd things would happen. The game would be in a white heat of competition, yet somehow I wouldn't feel competitive, which is a miracle in itself. I'd be putting the maximum effort, straining, coughing up parts of my lungs as I ran, and I never felt the pain. The game would move so quickly that every fake, cut, and pass would be surprising, and yet nothing could surprise me. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball inbounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout out to my teammates, it's coming over there, except that I knew that if I did, everything would change. My, <laughs> my premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I knew not only all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved by, moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. Sometimes the feeling would last all the way up to the end of the game, and when that happened, I didn't care who won. I can honestly say that those few times were the only ones when I really didn't care. I don't mean that I was a good sport about it, that I played my best and had nothing to be ashamed of. Rather, on the five or ten occasions when the game ended at that special level, I literally did not care who had won. If we'd lost, I was still free and high and happy. It's like that in practice sometimes. Pain, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just light on your feet. Your mind is just light on his feet. Magical practice, we could say. Mindfulness, calmness. There's another um, experience that confirms to us that, that practice is moving in the right direction. And that's this quality of equanimity. When we begin practice, we're reactive to everything. We like pleasantness, we dislike any form of unpleasantness, and we're, we're really jerked around a lot because we don't yet have any equanimity. We're not just resting in the way things are, we're resting in the way we prefer. And we're not resting at all, we're agitating to get things the way we prefer. And as you know, there's a lot of unpleasantness in, in practice. There are also pleasantness, you know, just sometimes just the simplicity of just eating or just moving carefully, slowly, can be really exquisite. And then we get seduced into liking it or disliking. We're constantly encouraging you to kind of temper your reactivity, to kind of recognize it, get a handle on it, note that, put it aside. But because the experience in insight practice is of constantly changing experience, unlike mantra practice, visualizations, and, and uh, other concentration practices where it's always the same experience over and over, 
in Vipassana practice. It's constantly changing. And so in every moment, there's a new thing to react to. It's very difficult to see that the mind is actually getting still, steady. And in that steadiness of observing the changing, we put aside our reactivity. Now, how is it and when do we begin to recognize non-reactivity of mind? It's not just in the calmness, because we, we can get seduced by that. It's not just in the effortless energy, because we can get seduced by that. It's not just in the pain. We're certainly reactive to that. But there are times when, unexpectedly, we're sitting with pain, and it doesn't even bother us. Or other times, you know, there's, there's a lot of distraction in the hall. It doesn't bother us. Or the mind is restless, wandering all over the place doesn't bother us. There are other times when the slightest movement of the person next to you, you know, the mind is reactive, it's on fire with, you know, reaction. And there are other times when we, we see, well, the mind, just not even, it's not that we're numb to, it's not that we're cut off from, it's not that we're in denial of, it's that the mind is actually equanimous, not getting caught. Sometimes it comes up pretty dramatically, and we feel so stable. It's just like, we feel like we could sit through anything. It doesn't matter. I could sit through it. And when that quality of equanimity is seen, unfortunately, we get attached to it. We would like to be non-reactive more of the time. In the beginning of practice, we think it's, a, it's something we do. Either we react or we don't react. Only we react. The Dharma doesn't react. When, we, when practice matures a little bit, and we, we start to have some good periods of practice in sittings, and I don't mean that it's a whole sitting or a whole day. I mean, it can be just five minutes here, three minutes there, it might be half an hour at times. When the mindfulness is mature and the mind is not caught in reactivity, there is less of you there and there's more of the Dharma there, more of just the way things are. And the way things are is not reactive. It's just the way things are. When you find yourself very reactive, then you can be sure you are there in full color. <laughs> One thing that, as equanimity develops, that it allows really in our practice is subtler experiences. Because when the mind is not reacting, and we're not agitating the mind with our reaction, we can begin to feel subtler sensations in the body, subtler states of mind, subtler emotions, and, and the mind actually opens up to subtler, uh, subtler things. And at times it can feel like the body is really 
not made of stuff, but it's very light. It's very um, cool, if you will, not not caught in the heat of reactivity. And due to the kind of the subtlety or the sublimity or the the clarity of this non-reactive mind, there's this little this little voice that comes into the mind of an expectation that something's about to happen. You know, you're sitting and it's really still and quiet, you're not reacting. And then there's this little <laughs> this little irritant comes into the mind. <laughs> you know, a little something's about to happen. And that's an indication of attachment. We're hooked, we're caught. We can't, we, we can't be satisfied just to be, oh, whew, okay, we, gotta, we have to say, hey, this is great. Must be the doorway to something. <laughs> so, this non-reactivity, um, this, this quality of equanimity. When I was in Burma uh, practicing, of course it was full, full-time practice, you know, day in, day out uh, for months, uh, It's amazing how non-reactive you can get to very significant events. And I, I'm thinking of the time when I was in Burma in 1988 when they had this political uprising and six weeks of everybody in the country demonstrating for democracy and then overnight the military took over and a lot of people disappeared and it was just extremely brutal. And in the monastery, we knew what was happening. We could hear it, we could see it. People was coming in and tell us there was there was a gazillion, you know, overnight newspapers that just kind of printed the news from the last day and they filtered into the monastery so you could read about it. I, there's an understanding how I don't know, when 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 the mind is not reactive, you can be open to it. You can you can recognize, you know, the fear and the horror and the terror and the and yet you don't get caught in it. You don't get angry and lost and spun out. It's amazing how balanced the mind can be in the face of extraordinary uh, conditions. Equanimity, mindfulness, calmness. Another extraordinary experience is when our insight really gets activated. And here I'm talking about when we really begin to see anicca, anatta, and dukkha. We talk about, we've, we've talked a lot about these insights or these, the three characteristics because they're, they're the doorway to, to really freeing the mind from its attachments, identifications, all forms of suffering. But it's not easy to open to these insights. It's really very difficult. Uh, particularly dukkha. Because, you know, I, t- I gave a talk on dukkha earlier in the retreat. Dukkha is pain, uh, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness, burdensome quality to life's experience. 
somehow the understanding of dukkha just doesn't fit our misconception of what spiritual practice is all about. Because when the insight into dukkha really starts to open, and, and that's what you see about your life, your practice, <clears throat> it's not only the momentary experience, which is dukkha, painful in the body, unpleasant and painful in the mind, it's also your sense of yourself is really dukkha, your sense of practice is dukkha, your sense of the teachers, other, other students, the, everything is dukkha. It's really hard to feel confident about your practice when that's your experience. You can't. You can't feel confident about your practice. And so you really need a teacher that can, that knows that this is actually good, this is good practice to be, you know, experiencing all this dukkha. Um, when insight into dukkha opens, there is considerable disappointment, frustration, anger, fault-finding, blaming, accusation, ingratitude, doubt, and the targets are fellow yogis, teachers, staff, and anyone else. <laughs> so if you've had some of those feelings, well, congratulations, your insight into dukkha is, is, is ripening. That's good. <laughs> and there's often this growing sense of the deep futility of practice. And I know <laughs> many of you have come in to report how useless you are at practice, how worthless you are, or how ineffectual you are at practice. And, you know, when you come in, you really believe it. And it's so much suffering. It's like, oh, you know, I wish I, wish I could, you know, kind of go, poof, this is great. You know, because that's the insight you have to see. You have to see that about yourself, your practice. This is the insight into dukkha. And if you don't get to see this, the door of dukkha hasn't opened yet. It's still waiting for you. So, our, our task is to keep noticing this and to not buy into the judgment that we're failing or, or we can't do this. But eventually, you know, eventually we stop reacting. Equanimity gains a little more strength. And this, the clarity of our insight, we talk about it a lot because we want you to really begin to kind of see your practice through the lenses of these insights. And when you do, you begin to see how clearly, moment to moment, continuously, these insights are apparent. But to do that, you have to let go of your usual sense of evaluating and comparing and measuring yourself. And this is the task of practice, to get you to let go of your usual self-referential evaluations, judgments, opinions, and to begin to use the Dharma, the way things are, as a reference or a tool for evaluating your practice. We'll tell you this at the end of the retreat. We don't tell you at the beginning of the retreat. But this, it's really important. And slowly, this is one of the transformations that takes place in the course of continuing to practice, is that you do begin to see anicca, nata, dukkha, 
in your own experience, confirming the Dharma, and slowly and reluctantly disentangling your sense of self from the way things are. Now you might ask, why bother? You know, it's like, yuck, and each anatta dukkha, yuck. Underneath, or I should say, along with these insights, comes this one exquisite taste. It's a taste of freedom. When you really see this is the way things are, and you really settle into it, in that moment you get a taste of freedom that you you can't get anywhere else. And it's that taste of freedom that keeps you practicing, that keeps you coming back, retreat after retreat. You know, lucky for us, we forget the pain of retreat, and all, all we can remember is this good feeling somehow. And so we say, God, I gotta go do that again. You know, we come back and it's all pain. We say, God, what, the, what was I thinking about? I was even nuts. You know, and at the end of that retreat, we say, God, that was great. I got to do that again. <laughs> you know, what is it that's making us say that? <laughs> it's not the pain. We're not coming here for pain and dukkha. We're coming here for that taste of freedom. Because we really see how we get disentangled from our stuff. And it's worth all of that dukkha is worth that taste. Because we see the direction we're going. We're, we're going in the direction of disentangling ourself and experiencing this freedom more deeply, more subtly, more continuously. We say you get hooked by the Dharma. So when we have these clear experiences of mindfulness and insight and equanimity, we begin to see this is what's going on in practice. That there is this development of attention, non-reactivity, and freedom. We clarify our understanding, oh, this is what practice is all about. We, We come to practice for all kinds of reasons. You know, we want to fix ourselves up somehow. And slowly we have to kind of put most of that stuff aside and clarify, really, what is it that practice does. It doesn't do everything for you, believe me. It just frees you from your entanglements. And for most people, that's enough. You know, forget all the rest of the stuff that we expected or hoped for or wanted. If we get that taste of freedom, that's enough to keep practicing. Now, the second question that gets asked, even as we see that this is the direction practice is going, is, can I do this? Can it? We, ha- we still ask of ourselves because we haven't really made the connection with the Dharma. We don't have that confidence in the Dharma yet. We refer to and think that it's me who's going to do this. And so we ask this question of ourselves: Can I keep doing this, or can I accomplish this? Can I achieve this? Can I fulfill this path? And, you know, if we really had to answer that question 
based on our own personal strengths, we would all honestly have to say no. We, wouldn't, we couldn't sustain it. Most of us do not have that personality strength to do that, in part because the personality gets deconstructed in practice. And then you're left with no self-confidence. And here's where confidence in the practice really begins to speak loudly. When I was first practicing, I used to say to my family, who, who really did not understand, I said, you know, this practice is the hardest thing I have ever done. And it's the only thing I want to do. And that, those two, those, those two things don't fit together right. You know, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, the only thing I want to do. It just, and it is. I mean, for me it was. And yet, in spite of how difficult I found it, I did one retreat. Next two years, didn't do anything. Then I went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. The first day on staff, I was up in the attic, insulating, putting out some insulation with a couple of other people on staff there. One of them was Rodney Smith. And we were having a discussion about Nibbana. You know, I did one retreat. I mean, let's talk about Nibbana. Where are we going here? So, <laughs> hello, come in. <laughs> Shoot for the top, you know. And Rodney reminded me just a couple of years ago, because I had totally forgotten for 25 years. He said, we were having this discussion. You remember we had this discussion? I remember the discussion. He said, you told me that you had absolutely no doubt that you were going to realize the truth of the Dharma this lifetime. And he said, I couldn't believe it. He says, I couldn't believe that, that you were so confident. Of course, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I didn't know what was involved. I, I, and yet, I still had that confidence. And lucky for me, I have a lot of energy, I think, to kind of <laughs> move in that direction. But when we come to practice, we bring some level of confidence a sense of efficacy, like I can do something, and it gets deconstructed. And of course, that's what happened to me. I, mean, I spent you know, 10 years of torturous uh, suffering because I wasn't going anywhere fast. And uh, boy, if I'd been reminded of that statement, I have absolutely no doubt, I would have thought, boy, what a fool. And yet, that kind of confidence is not, hasn't, really nothing to do with the books you've read or the kind of knowledge you have about the path or practice. It's about some level of trust. And slowly in practice we begin to let go of our mistrust of ourselves, our mistrust of the teachers, mistrust of the teachings, and just practice. And we get this little inkling, we get this growth in confidence that the Dharma works. We get these little hits every so often, you know what, this really works.
I haven't realized it, I haven't fulfilled it, I haven't kind of perfected it, but we see mindfulness really works. Or the way that Dharma is articulated is really the way it is. And that kind of um, confidence, you, you can't get any other way. You can't read it in a book and no teacher gives it to you. You can't think your way out of doubt. You can't think your, your way out of a lack of confidence. It's not possible. You can only practice your way out. And as you practice, we get these. And I know all of you have, you know, either been listening to a Dharma talk or you've just been sitting with your own stuff and click, light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, that's not insignificant. Because that little moment of, oh yeah, I see, or I get it, or oh, that's the way it is, is such a powerful confirming of the Dharma that it doesn't go away. You might not remember it, you might forget it, but it has entered your mind stream, it's had its effect, and you'll have a hard time getting it out of there. And so those little moments accumulate over the course of time. And so we, even though we do experience a lot of doubt about ourselves and the practice, we also have a lot of confirming experiences. But sometimes doubt, uh, uh, confidence can get a little excessive. And sometimes we get kind of swept up in this uh, kind of uh, enthusiastic, oh boy, the Dharma is so great. I'm just going to do retreat after retreat. I'm going to devote my life to the Dharma and I'm going to be, you know, you know, and, <laughs> you know, we get a little spun out. Because confidence can be kind of out of balance. It can get a little overboard. And, you know, sometimes we see people that are, uh, that have just ex- extraordinary faith or devotion or blind faith, and they'll do anything, even if it's foolish, for their teacher, for their, you know, their guru or whatever. And so it's really important that when we feel confidence, and the way we feel it is, you know, we feel uh, like practice works, we feel confident in our own capacity, we feel interested in further, further Dharma practice, and I don't mean kind of enthusiastically uh, over the top, but just, you know, we feel very confident, very um, supported by the Dharma in that way. And uh, that kind of confidence arouses in us a great urgency for sincere practice. Even if we can't follow it through at that time, because practice takes a lot of conditions, a lot of support. You need a lot of external conditions and internal conditions in order to devote your life to practice. But if there's that feeling that there's an urgency to practice, then you can be sure that your confidence in the Dharma is growing. I'm going to speak about one more experience that is, there's a few more, but I'll speak about one more. And that is the development of 
effortless energy. A lot of practice, you know, in the beginning is, is just grind it out, generate the energy, kind of get the momentum going. And it's really uh, a slog to, 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 keep, to keep with it. And yet there comes a time for all of us when practice happens by itself, mindfulness happens by itself, energy becomes effortless, and you just notice it's there, whether it's physical energy or mental energy, in a balanced way. And what we, what we begin to see then is that this energy, of this effortless energy, or this kind of balanced energy in practice, we didn't make it happen. We can't make it happen. We can't call it forth at will. But we see that it's a result of practice. If you don't practice, you'd never see it. But because we're practicing, occasionally, you know, things come together and we feel this kind of, wow, effortless energy is just like, you know, you know, you sit for an hour and, you know, the bell rings and it's like, you know, why should I get up? It's just like, it seems like I just sat down, you know, or, you know, you go to bed at uh, 10 o'clock or whatever it is, 11 o'clock, and then, you know, you wake up after two hours and you feel wide awake and you say, well, okay, well, now what? <laughs> you know, somebody was, somebody was telling me, they, oh, it was one of the guys in the first half, he said, God, I went to bed at 10 o'clock, I woke up at 11.30, and it's like I thought it was morning, it's time to get up. So he said, I tried to go back to sleep for two hours. Then at 1 o'clock, I said, shit, I might as well get up. So he got up, and he just, he said, boy, I'm really going to be tired during the day. He got up at 1, practiced all day, and, and didn't even notice it, that he was tired. Well, that kind of energy, when that kind of energy comes up, you you realize how these forces in the mind, energy and joy and mindfulness, tranquility, equanimity, they're not personal. If you do the practice, they'll develop, and then they'll carry you along, in spite of yourself. Even if you want to sleep, you can't. (laughs) Yuck! (laughs) Who wants to do that? I had one teacher in Burma who was um, one monk, Usatila. Utsatila. And he was, had tremendous energy. He was just phenomenal. He was about 50 when I was there. And uh, I thought I had a lot of energy, but this guy was... When he was doing his practice uh, at the Mahasi Center where I was, one time he didn't sleep for 15 days. He just sat and walked for 15 days, didn't sleep. No ill effects to his health either. He just had that kind of energy. It wasn't, I mean, he realized it wasn't personal. It's just that he got in the groove, so to speak. Just The groove just took him along. Of course, he didn't succumb to his, oh my God, i got to sleep. i got to get some rest. Or he just saw that, noted it. And he said that, you know, he didn't even realize it for several days. And then after several days, he said, well, God, I'm still not tired. You know, and then he set the goal of staying awake for 15 days and not a problem. Now, if any one of us tried to do that on our own will, forget it, we wouldn't stay up 20 hours. Right? We'd, be, we'd be exhausted. 
But when we kind of get in the groove and we see that this is possible, and uh, it doesn't have to be 15 days, even if it's just extending yourself for a couple of hours or waking up early and getting up, you get a glimpse of like, wow, this kind of energy in the mind is phenomenal. And it confirms all your efforts in practice. Of course, we would like it to stay that way. We get attached to it. We want it to always be that way. And of course, it isn't. You know, two days later, we can't even get out of bed. We're so exhausted, we're tired, and you know, we're just kind of slogging through the sittings. And we think, oh no, my practice has gone downhill. It hasn't gone downhill. You know, you're still doing just what you have to do. It's just that sometimes practice comes together. Sometimes practice falls apart. So I mentioned these different experiences of signs of good practice because all of us have had, or all of you have have had, moments of good practice, whether it's clarity or calmness or non-reactivity or effortless energy, a lot of confidence, a lot of stillness, you know, some kind of a phenomenal type of uh, energies in the body or mind, and don't dismiss them. On the other hand, don't get attached to them. Because in the process of uncovering or developing these energies and, and experiencing them and then living with them or living through them, really what we're doing is is growing in confidence that the Dharma actually works, and that we can settle back into that process and trust the process more than force ourselves. This kind of confidence and trust in the Dharma is based on self-knowledge, because we have seen for ourselves. We know for ourselves through our own body-mind experience. This is the way it is. And it really is the key to letting go, continuing to let go of our limited understanding of ourselves, our limited capacities, personal capacities, and to really open the door of the mind and the heart to the, the infinite possibilities of the mind through Dharma practice. Infinite possibilities. There is just no limit to the mind. Let's sit for a minute. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.